If you're a man who struggles with sexual addiction, have you ever asked yourself, how did I get here? Special guest, Debbie Laser, the founder and uh, co-founder and director of Faithful and True. And Debbie's here to uh, have us hear Greg Miller's uh, research results. And we're excited to hear about this because this is a project that's been in the works for many years. Um, Yes, it has been. And um, Deb probably remembers years ago when I first started talking about wanting to do some research to just explore some you know, specific aspects of the work that we do here, working with men who struggle with sexual addiction and just some questions that um, were raised through that. And one of the things to understand is that research is not new to Faithful and True. Um, Mark, years ago, began to really use the research that was coming out about um, sexual addiction to help formulate the work that we do here and help inform what it is that we do. So I was very thankful to be a part of that legacy. Yeah, I remember conversations at our dining room table as you were thinking about starting this research. And because we work with so many men here, we began to see some different trends from what research has shown us in the past and the reasons people struggle. And so we're really grateful you took off and started to you know, research some of those other components that might might affect actually why someone struggles with sex addiction. Yeah. You know, and what, what's true is um, I'm not a researcher. That's not my background. So I was very thankful for the academics that were willing to support me and help me and answer the questions and even help formulate the survey that eventually that we had, as well as how you and Mark were willing to just have conversations with me about ways to do this and what I was wanting to discover and explore. So this truly has been a a community project as we've gotten to this place. Mm -hmm. And it is exciting to see how um, my hope is whatever it is that we're discovering can begin to inform the way that we serve men. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. And the, the, the whole research began out of a, a statement that I would hear men make over and over. You know, here at Faithful and True, we do a, a monthly workshop for men. I've been the director for um, about 11 and a half years. I've done lots of workshops at this point. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, especially the younger men would say is, as we were talking about their story and their experiences and some of the things that led to possibly their addiction, many of the men would say something like, you know what, I don't know why I'm here because it wasn't that bad when I was growing up. And I heard that enough that I wanted to begin to pay attention to that because the traditional addiction model would basically say that a person who had experienced, and it's difficult to find the language, so let's say significant trauma, Um, would then lead to some sort of um, addictive energy. And if they were exposed to something sexual, it would lead to sexual addiction. And kind of using the language of maybe big T trauma or significant trauma, a lot of the younger men, especially who are coming through our program, wouldn't fit that particular model. And so that began conversations between Mark and I and others around then what are some of the factors that um, brought a man here? Mm-hmm. And I know, Deb, that you were a part of conversations with Mark and others when the first research was coming up about what was driving the sexual addiction 
and kind of the role of trauma in that. Yes. Well, and, you know, Mark went to inpatient treatment back in the 80s, in the late 80s. And it was then that Patrick Carnes, the founder of our field, I say our field, it's like we own it, of the field of sexual addiction, um, had done some significant research on abuse for those who were identifying themselves as a sexual addict. And what he found was that 91%, or I'm sorry, 83% of the population um, had actually been sexually abused in their lifetime, and 73% or so, I, I might be a little bit off right. percentages, <laughs> were um, physically abused, and 91 or so percent had been emotionally abused. So when you put all that together, the, the uh, indication was that these folks had really experienced a lot of abuse in their life, and it made sense when you started to look at also the sexual invasion or experimentation that they were exposed to added to that trauma was a very indicative um, part of why they were struggling with this addiction. Um, over the years, though, as Mark and I began to work with this population in a, on a full-time basis, and you joined us as mm -hmm. well as others, we began to notice more of the influence of abandonment issues mm -hmm. and neglect. And actually, I think some of that came out more so when when we started writing our book about the seven desires of the heart, which were more about emotional things that um, people were either receiving in their family systems and also their environment, or they weren't. Mm -hmm. And I think you began to also try to incorporate that into our workshops to take a look at what was missing in terms right. of the men who were coming here to look at their addictions. So that emotional aspect, I think, became a really huge component of that. And then you started noticing even more. Right. Um, so. Well, and I, I remember Mark saying regularly that he felt like some of the strongest energy of the addiction had to do with abandonment. Mm -hmm. And so here we talk to the men about invasion and abandonment. And um, the way that we define it is invasion is when a boundary is crossed and something happens to you that shouldn't have happened to you as a child. And abandonment is when the uh, boundary is too rigid and the line isn't crossed and you have a need that goes unmet. And so we wanted to begin to understand, you know, what is the role of invasion and abandonment? And Mark would often say that the energy of abandonment is so much more difficult to identify because how do you miss something that you never had? And, um, you know, there was a, a conversation that we would have with the men. And in fact, Mark created kind of a criteria of abandonment um, that I then translated into the survey that I did so that men could begin to see more clearly those things that maybe they did miss. And another way that we talk about abandonment at the workshop is for men who are fathers, I often ask, are there some experiences that you're having with your children that you don't remember your father having or your mother having with you? And so we, we start creating these lenses so that we can see our story maybe in a new way to start say, saying, hey, there were some things that I needed growing up that I didn't get that could be driving the addiction, that, that need I've sexualized, and now all these years later, I'm trying to meet that abandonment need through some sort of sexual experience. Yeah. What I love about your survey, and you can get into talking about more of that with us, is how you have put words to what are kind of evasive terms mm -hmm. like abandonment and what does that mean exactly mm -hmm. to not have some things I maybe needed because when we don't even know what those are, we don't know how to name them, we don't really know when they're not there. 
I think what we know is that we don't feel good when they're not there, and it brings up emotions that are you know, perhaps lonely or scared or angry or whatever. But I, I love the fact that you've been able to put some real specific terms to these things that um, are, are, you know, basically hard to describe. Right. You know, and, you know, a lot of times if you were to ask someone, you know, did you feel abandoned? Um, many times they would say no, because maybe they didn't have an awareness of it, or maybe they're minimizing some of the things that they experienced. So it's almost as if you do have to be able to ask a specific type of experience question so that somebody could say, and, and we did a, a graded scale, so you know, anywhere from uh, it never happened to it regularly happened, um, so that they could even identify maybe where they were on a continuum, which get, gives them more freedom to say, you know what, I do remember that happening some, or yes, that was a regular experience that I had. Maybe they would have never called it abandonment, but now we're putting it in the context of understanding of, yeah, that was something that was probably difficult and painful for you that maybe you weren't even aware of as you were experiencing it. What I'd like to put in here, when we send out the questionnaire that follows up the men's experience at the workshop, I'm always uh, grateful for their comments because they're so honest. Mm -hmm. And and the um, the reviews that you personally get for your teaching style are just off the charts because they they say personal things like Greg spoke uh, directly to my heart mm -hmm. or Greg uh, Greg taught in a manner that opened my eyes to things I wasn't even remembering right. about my childhood. So suddenly they're they're reaching a new level of understanding their addiction where they probably came here not thinking they had an addiction. And then you open the door to all of these possibilities of, of what they might have experienced. But the, the men are coming back to us and uh, really marveling at, uh, at what you help them to understand about their own story. Yeah, well, one of the principles that we teach is the more you remember, the more you remember. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, you know, when you begin thinking about your own story, whether you're doing a survey or it's for your own personal reflection, it does take an intentional effort to begin to reflect so that you can begin to engage your story in a way that can be helpful and redemptive and hopefully at some point even transformative. You know, so part part of the conversation that we had is we had this group of guys coming in, like I said, typically younger, that would say they didn't experience significant, you know, invasion or significant abandonment. And one of the principles that we teach is that everybody is invaded. Everybody is abandoned, both in our homes and out of our homes. So it's not a question of was I, it's the, the question is to what extent. And so if you're looking at a continuum, we still have men who come through the workshop that fit that traditional model, that they would say an invasion and abandonment on a scale from 1 to 10, that they would be like a 7, 8, 9, 10. We also have men who are coming through all ages, but a lot of them are younger, that would say, yeah, there was some invasion and abandonment, but it might be more on a scale of 2 or 3, given that, you know, a, a scale of 10, so why am I here? And that question of why am I here is what really began to generate that, the, the, the desire for research, because I began to see that there were some factors that were contributing to that. And so I wanted to ask questions about various things that could contribute to someone's woundedness, is the language that we would use. And so one of the things that we did in the survey is we broke out invasion and abandonment. We wanted men to identify 
and be able to, to say, say, you know, yes, these are some areas of invasion, and then here are some areas of abandonment. And one of the things that was seen in the survey and in the research was that the invasion energy had just as much power as the abandonment energy, and the abandonment energy was just as significant as invasion. And so for those men that would say, well, nothing ever bad happened to me, I was never significantly invaded, what we know is abandonment, to whatever extent, is an influencer in the shame that then drives the addiction. So I think it was exciting for me to be able to validate what Mark had been saying for years about the power of abandonment in a person's story. Well, you do have a gift of taking these subtleties in someone's story and helping them to understand how, they, how that did affect them. And, and I think that's why sometimes, too, um, as, as people are working on getting well, uh, it takes a long time because I, I even noticed for myself after 30 years of you know, being uh, not only a client originally, but then also a therapist that I'm still learning things mm-hmm. about the subtleties of my life. I want to say, too, that I know um, part of our teachings here are that when you accept that there are these subtleties of abandonment or abuse or these other issues you're going to be talking about, it doesn't mean we came from bad families. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, that's we, we really want to accentuate that because what we know is we, we all are imperfect people. Right. And as much as we would like to parent perfectly and have a great, perfect home, none of us have the ability to do that. So if we can help people understand we're not here about trying to find blame and shame within the family. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to help them to understand the subtleties sometimes of their story and why that has affected them and led to certain behaviors. I think we can all just relax and know that developing our story is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the principles that I have in my own life is there are no villains in my story. And I want other men to understand if you're looking for that villain, that's not going to be helpful, whether you believe you're the villain in your own story or somebody else is, but to recognize the complexity of life and and family and just the things I experienced. Another thing that we did is we measured invasion and abandonment in the home, but we also measured it outside of the home. And so in the invasion category, we looked at invasion out of the home by adults and invasion by peers out of the home. That would be typically bullying. And then when it came to the abandonment, we looked at abandonment in the home and abandonment out of the home. Because again, we recognize that growing up as children, it's not just what's happening in my family that influences me, it's in every part of my life. And so we wanted to be able to see through the research, is that true? And it absolutely was. In fact, one of the the significant contributing factors for men Um, would be the uh, invasion that they had out of the home, which would typically be bullying. And so I thought that that was really significant, that a lot of times when we're talking about people's story, if we're not intentional to ask them about bullying, you know, were there times that um, you experienced bullying um, from people outside of your home? Um, They may not talk about it because they may have been minimizing it, but it really, as we're seeing in the research, is significant factor to the addiction itself. I love the fact that your research took you to this, you know, dimension of out of the home as well as in mm-hmm. the home because there's so much emphasis on our family of origin stories. And I think it does place, you know, on a lot of parents a feeling of shame or responsibility um, for anything their children have become. And what we're finding is these outside influences are so important to understand and sometimes the more driving forces 
in terms of what we have struggled with in our life. So um, can you explain to us, because uh, I know understanding the cycle of addiction is important and maybe just kind of review what that looks like? Right. So um, what Patrick Carnes originally came up with is if you look at this cycle, the beginning place at the top is what was referred to as wounds. Um, and that anytime we experience invasion, abandonment, to whatever extent, we are hurt by that. And so another language might be the big T trauma, that could be a factor. Then what they identified was from that came shame. And so shame was a significant factor in the addiction and understanding shame. And, you know, we believe that shame are the negative lies, the, the, uh, the facts, the things that aren't true about ourselves. And I often describe shame as the lies that we believe about ourselves and we believe about God. And then from that shame, we try to escape the shame through fantasy. And so fantasy and fantasy, you know, all fantasies are an escape fantasy, that there's pain in my life that I want to escape from. And so I do that through some sort of fantasy. And then the fantasy leads to the rituals. And a ritual is anything that I do to prepare myself to act out or to create the space to act out. It can be the saving of money in a secret account. It could be um, developing relationships that are um, developing over time for some sort of sexual experience. Um, it could be a ritual as simple as making sure that I have my phone so that when I have opportunity, I can look at pornography. But a ritual are the behaviors, the things I do that create the space for me to act out. And then the acting out is the, the behavior that I do that I go to that provides some sort of temporary relief from my chaos. Um, and it typically is some sort of sexual experience. It can be the pornography or masturbation that I do by myself, or it could be something I, some sexual behavior I engage with others. And then what Patrick identified after that was after the acting out came despair. And despair for me is that belief that things will never get better. The shame message of despair is I am hopeless. This is hopeless. I will always be like this. And once I begin to believe I cannot change and I'm in that place of despair, it makes perfect sense. I'm going to be looking for another way to retreat or an opportunity to retreat. And that brings us back to fantasy. And I often tell the men, if it feels like you've been on a hamster wheel in your addiction, then you've identified the cycle of addiction. You may not have known that, but there is this cycle that we go through. And so um, what, we're, what we're understanding is the origin of the addiction, what has been considered the big T trauma, we just wanted to expand that a little bit. And I, I use the image of the difference between one big storm and the perfect storm. And the difference is the, the big storm is a big storm where all of the factors come together to create one big storm. The perfect storm is when smaller storms come together to create a large storm. And so for a lot of men, they can't point to one big experience that says, this explains why I'm here. But there isn't one because it was a variety of unique, smaller experiences that came together in, in kind of a, a distorted harmony to create the perfect storm. And I think as you're saying that, I mean, just simply put, each storm, whatever it is, big or small, creates beliefs mm -hmm. about yourself, others, and the world. And it's the belief system that we begin to carry that may be distorted or untrue, as we say, that continues to drive us to do things, to medicate the feelings that come from that. So shame, in essence, is just, you know, I'm a bad and worthless mm -hmm. person. 
And that can come from so many things. You know, it's been interesting to me, Greg, as we've been talking about your research the last few months, how I've been focused a little more on some of the subtle experiences mm -hmm. in my life that have led to shame that I never really even thought that much about. But some of these experiences, one was as young as when I was four and doing a ballet recital with my sister and she was pointed in the wrong direction and I thought I would help her out. So I tiptoed down to the line and turned her around and the whole audience just burst out in laughter. Uh, for me, that was totally embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I know shaming and thinking, I really did something wrong here. And I, you know, I mean, this is a big stretch, but even something like that, I think, leads to my fear of, of talking in public, performing in public, um, because I'm afraid I'll make a really stupid mistake right. and be shamed, you know, the way I, I felt like I was when that happened. So those really subtle experiences, I think, for all of us, sometimes takes time for those to come to the surface of our memory to see how they really impacted our future behaviors. Now I understand why we can't yeah. get Debbie to dance in public. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. I even have my little tutu. <laughs> You'll have to bring that in for yeah, show and share someday. Me forever, let me tell you. So don't laugh at four-year-olds trying to do No, we've done okay. that. You know what? <laughs> Having been uh, my younger sister, um, part partook for many years in dance classes in, in Fargo. And so I had to sit through a lot of dance recitals. And, and to the audience, those are the most memorable moments, like you turning your sister around. They're precious. I mean, it's, it's just the opposite. It's not shameful. It was actually uh, adorable. Yeah, but again, my perception. Right. Sure. And then how we experience it. How we experience yeah. in our perception and then not talking about it. Right. So I took my perception of it and lived with that for years. Well, we've even talked about the fact, as we've done this research, one of the things that it came up was that the early experience creates shame. And then what happens is the shame supersedes the earlier experience in driving the addiction. And so it's almost as if for years, you know, I've been telling men about healing their pain, which I think is still valid. But I think one of the things is it's not about healing the memory. It's about healing the shame, the lie that I believe about myself that came from those experiences. And so that's a subtle shift, but it helps us to begin to understand, like you've said, those negative beliefs. And... You know, we teach a lot about shame at the workshop, and one of the, the, the kind of the original message of shame is there's something wrong with me. And so any experience that causes me to question my sense of value, my identity, my safety, raises that question of what's wrong with me is the seed of shame. And then as you've said, if it's not talked about, if it's not acknowledged, that that seed will continue to grow. And eventually the power of shame is it does make us vulnerable to wanting to escape into fantasy. So whatever is presented in our life, sex addiction, alcohol, narcotics, gambling, spending, there's that vulnerability there. And then we begin to try to rescue ourselves from that shame through those experiences. I was just checking our time here yes. because we're excited about this research project, and I think we uh, we predetermined that this deserves to be a two-part <laughs> podcast. So as we start to wrap up podcast number one about your research, um, I, I always used to ask Mark, when Mark and I did the, the, uh, the Men of Valor podcast, um, how would you like to wrap up today's first podcast, knowing that we're going to come back and present a second half of your research. Well, the first thing I want to encourage our listeners to come back, because the next time we're going to talk specifically about some of the things that we measured that we see are a contributor to shame. But the other thing that I would say is to, to recognize that there is hope. 
that as we begin to um, identify the various things that contribute to our shame, that then contribute to the addiction, that there is a way to move forward, that it's not just being stuck in the past. And one of the things I regularly talk to men about is we don't deal with the past for blame. That if we're talking about the past just for blaming the past, then we end up getting stuck back there. But if we explore the past to understand, then that gives us the opportunity to move forward in freedom. And so there is so much, so much hope, I believe, in what we are discovering and our desire to incorporate these things into our conversations and our teaching here at Faithful and True. Well, hope and healing is what we're all about here at Faithful and True, and we're grateful for you and grateful for your research and grateful for Deb for joining us today on the podcast. We hope that today's podcast has been uh, beneficial to you and that you'll come back and join us for part two of Greg's research. And in the meantime, we hope that this coming week will be a week for you that's filled with many blessings and great vision.